0: And it's everything you need to make a quality podcast all in one place. So, what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or visit Anchor.fm to get started.
1: Desiree Young is a cross-sector senior executive with over two decades of experience working in philanthropy and the non-profit and for-profit sectors. Desiree's professional experience encompasses entrepreneurship, leadership development, poverty alleviation and economic development, practiced through venture philanthropy and impact investing models at senior positions at the Tory Birch, Tony Illumilu and Robin Hood Foundations and the Synergosis Institute for Global Philanthropy Network. Desiree has run entrepreneurial ventures, including the Cotton Tree Philanthropy Advisors, Inc. A philanthropic strategy and advisory entity that maximizes social and economic returns for high net worth individuals, non-profit and businesses. Currently, she works independently and adds value as a strategic business advisor by providing tactical and implementable solutions to SMEs globally. Hi, everybody. Back with another episode of WTF, Where's the Funding? Hey, Michelle, how are you? I'm doing well, Lydia. How are you? I can't complain. I think this is week five of quarantine club quarantine but um how
0: have you how have you been passing your time I've been up in the actual club quarantine on IG quite a lot passing my days just dancing the days away
1: I have too but uh it's it's a hard lesson that I am not as young as I think I am (laughs) come on you gotta take lots of breaks hydrate and stretch don't um don't overdo it Um, But seriously, I've just been trying to sort of keep to a routine and making sure that um, as much as possible, I'm having some balance. Um, I think it's easy to be overworked and for your sort of personal time to bleed into your professional time and vice versa. So just being really conscious of giving myself some time to rest and get lots of sleep and hydrate and work out and just keeping a nice balance between that and, you know, professional obligations.
0: Well, you know, that's something I've been doing a very, I've always done a very good job of compartmentalizing my life and keeping work out of my personal space, even when I'm home, because we, I think we're all finding the tendency that because you're home, your employees think that you're always available to them and I'm like, this homie don't play that. Um, I'm off the clock. <laughs> I'm nice. given my hours. I need my personal time to like work on this headspace and um, be whole for myself. And so I have been um, doing a fairly good job of, of of keeping that separate and focusing on me. You know, I did a fourteen day detox oh, while you nice. know. Um, on this quarantine thing because I'm like this is the time where we have to take that time to focus inward as well so to not let other people take up all of your time with their needs but to be able to focus on what your needs are and what you need to do for you and make sure that you're okay because I am quarantined by myself like I live alone so I have to make sure I take care of this vessel and not allow anyone else to compromise compromise that because if I'm not feeling well, then I'm of no good to anyone else,
1: yeah, definitely important to make sure that you're taking care of yourself holistically um and you know especially given the fact that we're still in the midst of it, not sure what the timeline's gonna be, so really important to do that so. Um, but today we are we're going to be hearing from Ms. Desiree Young, who I met through um, my relationship with Vanlayo Alavi, who was our first guest. And very very excited to hear from Desiree. She is a dynamic speaker. She's had so much experience in the philanthropic finance world. She's run um, you know, initiatives. She's worked for the Tony Lumalu Foundation. So Desi has done it all. And I think uh listeners are really going to be excited to hear her rather direct response and thoughts about entrepreneurship. I think, you know, Desi's definitely one of those people who's just like, you know, entrepreneurship it shouldn't be a hobby. And not one of these kind of du jour things that people should get into, you should go into it with your eyes wide open. And yeah, hearing her insights about what businesses need to be thinking about right now, especially with COVID. And just lessons learned about having viable, marketable businesses that are attractive to funders, because I think that's another area that a lot of people aren't really sure what funders are looking for, and she's worked with some of the top funders around the world. So getting her insights there, I think, would be particularly helpful for people thinking about that as a um, you know business growth strategy.
0: I agree. And so without further ado, let's welcome Desiree Young to the show. Welcome, Desiree.
2: Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Congratulations on launching your podcast you and Michelle there's a lot of information out there but I love the angle that you're taking of WTF where the hell is the funding Mm.
0: yes (laughs) it's such a critical question and we're hoping that having guests like you will help us to sort of provide some answers that Uh nurse can um, find useful
2: I will try
1: yeah so we will definitely be getting into that but you know Desiree I've known you for quite some time and you have the most enviable resume. Please tell us a little bit about your career, especially around entrepreneurship and leadership development.
2: Oh, thank you. That's, that's you know, I think my resume, you know, stands out, but, you know, it's, you know, most people reach out to me and ask how did you get where you are? How did you navigate? And sometimes it's by a divine intention. Sometimes I've been intentional, but I, I know I stand out as a cross sector expert, meaning that I've worked in private sector, I've worked in philanthropy and no nonprofit and NGO that space. So usually I stand out in my brain where I can understand both sides. And I do think that you know sometimes people think of Nonprofit or philanthropy is very separate from business, but I have to say that it's actually the same. Um, so with my career around entrepreneurship and leadership, literally has just followed me through my life, whether I've worked in philanthropy or business. So early days, uh, fell into philanthropy working at a Robin Hood foundation in New York City, where that vehicle is one of the leading organizations that funds Nonprofits in New York, they raise millions of dollars. Most of the board members are business people, they're hedge funders. So um, my role there was a senior program officer, and I made grants to some of the leading organizations. So I worked on leadership development there with some of the amazing leaders from all walks of life, I would say. Some are working on food banks, some of them were working on with immigrant communities. Um, So that followed me. I moved into international development, where I wanted a little bit more of a challenge. Um, And so again, through philanthropy, I was working in Nigeria with Tony Lubulu Foundation. And that was all about entrepreneurship. And that's pretty unique. In Africa, if a high net worth individual says they're going to start a foundation, Literally, they're doing it because of the, they because they want to. In the United States, we can say that there are laws that encourage philanthropy, but in Africa, there are no laws, so there are no tax deductions to drive philanthrop, philanthropic intent or giving. So yeah. it was quite exciting to work um, on the continent. I knew West Africa was going to be the next hotspot as far as philanthropy and working. With Tony, it was all about entrepreneurship. We created a program where it was about a pipeline for philanthropists across the continent. I mean, uh, entrepreneurs across the continent to have the opportunity to apply for funding, um, grant funding to kick up their ideas. Um, And then I worked in the ecosystem there, looking at incubators, accelerators, which were popping up then. And then I moved back to the States, and most recently I worked for Terry Burch Foundation. I was hired literally to design a program that would somewhat establish a legacy. That was about women entrepreneurs. I have a gender lens because I've studied um, international development with that. So I was able to create a program, a fellows program, which really um, showcases women entrepreneurs because often investors might say, where are the women entrepreneurs? Where are the women-led businesses? So. With her brand, it was really important to showcase women entrepreneurs from all walks of life, um, across sectors, and it's a national program, just the United States. But I can say that I was proud um, of that program, launching that and scaling that, um, where they get support, access to capital with important partners like Bank of America, education program with uh, Goldman Sachs, 10,000 small businesses. And of course, a robust network of experts that we were able to bring to the table. So for me, entrepreneurship actually runs in my blood. I should just say that, you know, outside of my career, it started at a very young age. I come from a family of entrepreneurs that was my grandmother who launched a bakery business. And it's how all of us got educated. By the time I was 18, I knew that business intimately and I could run it which means negotiating with suppliers, understanding distribution, um, understanding brand. So when I talk about brand, brand equity is really important for the long term. My grandmother's bakery is one of the only indigenous businesses in Sierra Leone, and it's been around for 70 years. So when you think about the brand, I can tell you whether I go to a wedding here in the United States, people remember growing up with that brand, my grandmother's bread. And it means something it's a nostalgia, so I'll stop there. It's runs entrepreneurship runs in my blood. I am very passionate about women entrepreneurs because they're hidden, they're not seen, they're not funded um, and that drives me every day when I wake up.
1: Such an amazing story, Desiree. I just you know having the experience both here and on the continent um and then your sort of personal story around what entrepreneurship means to you. I think I've always been incredibly impressed by your insights, but, um, yeah. So, um, as it relates to entrepreneurship and mm-hmm. the ecosystem available to support entrepreneurs, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about what you, um, Lydia, activities? before
0: we go on into that, um, can we go back a little bit to just talk about a few things that, Desiree mentioned, particularly her work with the Tony Elomelo Foundation and what they're doing around entrepreneurship and philanthropy and in West Africa, which seems to be lagging really far behind in terms of investments, Mm. support for entrepreneurs compared to East Africa. Maybe, you know, language and ease of entry might be a reason behind that. And just seeing what that foundation is doing in in, in West Africa, but also that the, the work is across the continent. But just in my work that I do, I just find that West Africa as a whole is, is kind of like left out and lagging behind in terms of investment. And just happy to see that um, he was doing that and using philanthropy to drive entrepreneurship. What are your thoughts on that?
2: So... Twofold. I would say that traditionally, um, East Africa has been the darling of the West, meaning if you're in Kenya, for example, I remember this is around 2007, 2008, where they had an election and there was an outbreak of violence. Now, one third of the population of, of, of Kenya, actually, are employed by NGOs. A lot of people don't know that that's a huge number of the workforce that are reliant on um, foreign international development agency, foreign investors, period. That's very unusual and very different from West Africa, right? Um, So there's a huge attraction of um, philanthropic dollars, huge attraction of NGOs that have hubs in East Africa that has been going on for years. I think it has to do with political stability. Um, And so 2008 was the first time there was some level of instability, but that was clamped very quickly. I was actually planning a high net worth trip, a trip for high net worth individuals to go to Kenya. And we had to postpone because it was the first time everybody felt, oh, there's some instability in, in East Africa. So there's been an attraction. And that was my frustration. I was working then for Synago's Institute. And everybody focuses on oh, doing business in South Africa, investing in South Africa, investing um, in East Africa, Southern Africa, Eastern Africa gets a lot of attention. When it comes to West Africa, I don't think that it's the linguistical challenges. I think that we've had a lot of unrest, um, just looking at the history. Sure. Um, so that actually has deterred um, a lot of investment, so to speak, to West Africa. I think there was a huge excitement for example, when Ellen Johnson Salif became president um, of Liberia. The trend we saw then because of her background in the West, UNDP, um, she was able to pull a lot of folks in her network from the West. And there was an excitement. I remember lots of individual, individuals, high know worth individuals with family foundations were excited to support a female president. There were lots of people on the ground mobilizing that kind of capital, right? Um hasn't necessarily happened. There are lots of investment that go into Nigeria, but let's talk about philanthropic capital that Tony used to mobilize um, entrepreneurship. I I knew for sure when you think about the rising middle class and what's happening in West Africa, this is, you know, I'm talking about 2007, eight, nine, this is not, you know, last year, year of the return when everybody's excited about going to visit Ghana based on ancestry <laughs> and, and nostalgia, right? Investment capital has been going to West Africa, but what Tony did was to say, entrepreneurship is a way of elevating folks from poverty. It's another way, right? Education is one way you can invest into international development. But entrepreneurship is about um, creating jobs, creating industry. It's about creating opportunity to say, here are SMEs that have the potential Um, And I think that if you see more of West African China, what individuals put their money behind some of these um, um, entities, enterprises, then foreign investors might come through and they also, we've mitigated their risks, so to speak. Right. Right. Um, I have to say that, you know, there's a lot with Tony's program. It's more for startups. So very early stage, actually it's open to every entrepreneur, but what they get is a um, 5,000 grant, so to speak, for their businesses. I think what is missing is the middle bridge of capital that SMEs need. So we're talking about- Thank you,
0: Desiree.
2: um, And and if you can lend any thought to that. Pardon me?
0: I say thank you for mentioning that missing middle piece. And that's-
2: Middle middle piece is what's, it's really where, and this is a vacancy globally, I think. So there's been, let's not forget, there's been a rash of microfinance vehicles across Africa, right? right. Lots of microfinance initiatives, which everybody was excited about. I have taken a, a view that I think that microfinance was great. It, it facilitated group lending, but it's very expensive. And it has created what I consider a rash of petty traders, meaning when I walk into the markets in any country that, you know, there's lots of microfinance, people are excited about that. But what are people selling? The women are selling the same bowls made in China, and very few people are buying those everyday items. So what we need are businesses that are far beyond microfinance that can actually create processing centers, manufacturing, quality jobs, right? But where is that capital coming from? And that's what is missing.
1: And when you talk about that sort of uh, missing middle area, Desiree, Uh like I know it obviously changes per sector and there are lots of variables, but where do you start in terms of a dollar amount? Where do you really start to see like a real scarcity in terms of like investor confidence that yes, we can put this amount into businesses? Like
2: where does it usually start? You know, investor confidence, I think, you know, I worked on an initiative where I was looking at, in Nigeria specifically, there are about, what, 40 million SMEs? I don't know if you know this. That's a lot. And what the definition of SMEs, we could talk about that, you know. um, But I focused on an initiative where I was working at the foundation, at Tony's Foundation, to find businesses that were generating half a million dollars in revenue. Um, because we were partnering with an external partner to say, let's build a platform. So if I go to a country, I can say this is a stable of um, companies that have been vetted. What does that mean? It means that we looked at their finances. We looked at whether they've been audited. We looked at whether they've paid their taxes. The issue is a lot of SMEs are owned by individuals. And so I'm speaking about this from the internal what's really wrong with the system so we need to do better as far as the building blocks of governance within the business transparency right um, there's a lot of commingling where you know even in in family they like run like family businesses where um adults children are the board of are on the board of directors right so right we wanted to standardize and create transparency and bring the technical assistance to say okay Here's how you create some of the building blocks so that if an external investor comes, you show in the structure and that you are in compliance in just what it looks like based on global standards, so to speak, mitigates the risk so someone can say, okay, these businesses have been vetted. Therefore, I am confident to invest whether it's 50000 or a million dollars. But also, what is the plan for growth? So SMEs also have to take the responsibility to say, if I got 100,000 today or 200,000 today, I know exactly what I'm gonna do with that money and this is gonna be the outcome. Whether it means that I am, I am invested in inventory or I'm buying equipment, that clarity and strategic decision and plan often does not exist um, to give confidence from an external investor, whether you're local or an FDI. Does that make At sense? Fun- so that's yeah. one part of the problem. Yeah. At the foundation
0: yeah. where I work, that's the kind of that we're doing with SMEs, mm-hmm. with agricultural cooperatives and SMEs. Um, sure. What we can do a better job of doing is networking them to opportunities after us, right? So let's say we go in, we fund them, we help them develop their investor readiness roadmap. We mm-hmm. have to do a little bit more networking to connect them to market access and to financial access afterwards. Sure. Done that development work, that foundational work, making sure that they have the financial and organizational management systems in place, that they're running like a functional business. And now, okay, what next in terms of their sustainability? Who are we passing them on to? How are we helping them to leverage additional funding that will help them to continue along their their growth journey?
2: Right. So part part of the ecosystem is to invite those investors a little bit closer the fact that you've done that in agribusiness for me i worked across sector right and investors are all very different uh uh, someone who invests in consumer goods may have no clue about agribusiness so it's investment is a marriage you've got to find the right investor for the type of industry that you're growing some people are agnostic but usually investors have a focus right so we will invite as many investors locally in the room to hear these organizations that we've vetted, just as you, you described, when you know that they've actually, you've done the technical assistance to make sure that they're presentable and investment ready. They're already bankable. They're very clear. Um, we invite, invite investors in the room, but they also are looking for a unicorn. They're looking for that one business that's actually going to make sure that their fund performs to return Um, what they've promised to their investors most investors it's not individual money again investors their customers are people who invest in their funds their customers are not the enterprises often that's the mismatch right so yes they're Mm -hmm. looking for a pipeline but they're looking for that unique thing they're looking for that one that they can bet on they're not gonna bet on 10 agribusinesses right that you present to them, they might pick the strongest one, the one with the most potential, the one that has generated the most revenue as a strong indicator of performance. So there often is not enough capital in the system, this middle capital that we're saying is missing, and one of the creative different vehicles that needs to come into the space so that people can actually get some growth capital, and it may just be debt. We're not even just talking about equity. I right. personally, am a, I'm a good, I'm an advocate for debt funding at, and that's why I was excited about impact investing. So there are lots of impact investors that I think that could come into the space and say, listen, we can make less than market rate returns, um, but there's an opportunity because it's a little bit more patient capital. That's what is really missing. Does that make sense, Michelle?
0: Yes, it does. And there needs to be more space for more patient capital, depending on what the the business sector is. Because I tend to feel like the unicorn lens leaves a lot of um, you know, really good businesses that could on the floor Well, behind yeah. because they're just looking for we have to invest in the street because we have to get our return and invest. I'm like sure. some of these could go far like you say if it's not about equity and getting your return on investment and that's why it is important and also grants grants still play a role because that's the most patient capital that's out there um to be able to move these other ones along that have not reached unicorn status and maybe they could get to uniform status but just need a little bit more capital to get them there.
2: Yeah I, I am not a favor of grants to businesses per se. I actually there are many ways to structure it. I structured recoverable grants. So here in the United States with the Fellows Program, for example, with Tory Birch, we had a $100,000 prize. And I I feel like businesses who generate revenue should not get free money per se because the discipline you're preparing them for, you're actually saying, I'm going to give you this money to get you to the next level so an investor can come and give you money once you you hit their their appealing um, benchmark, so to speak. So we, we, you can do recoverable grants at zero yes all right.
0: I have a question. Does yeah. that perspective um, relate to all businesses at all levels? Like what if you're just at the nascent stage where you just need to get- No, to-
2: nascent stage, if you have someone that's willing to give you a grant, sure. But I'm talking about when it's significant amounts of money, you're profitable business. And of course, this was philanthropic dollars in the United States. First of all, you're not allowed to invest in a business as a, with philanthropic capital. So there are systemic impediments here in the United States that will not allow, um, unless you're a social enterprise, right? And I was looking at women entrepreneurs in for-profit. I didn't care about social enterprise because women entrepreneurs don't get investment capital. So 3% of investment capital go to women-led businesses. But women are not a protected class. Women of color are but well, not all women entrepreneurs, do you understand? So there's a, there's a mismatch and a gap and philanthropic capital is restricted and can only do so much. That's the context here. In Africa, I can do whatever I want. I can give it as a grant. I can invest. I can create the terms with philanthropic capital. It's up to me. So I can create an impact, invest in fund and say, you know what? I am just going to fund women you know, on the continent that are running businesses at any amount. And there's no law that prohibits me to do that. So we so need we, to look at the, the legalities of what you can and cannot do as well with the kind of capital that you have to invest in these businesses.
1: I I'm, I think you make a really good point, Desiree, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, what COVID-19 is going to mean for the global business market. But I'm actually wondering now with the volatility of this investment market Mm -hmm. in the current space, whether there is an opportunity for people to be thinking more about impact investing, um, you know, I I obviously we'll be watching and seeing there's just a lot of, um, volatility and uncertainty at the moment. Um, but moving a little bit into sort of, you've obviously got lots of perspectives around entrepreneurship, Mm um, can you talk a a little bit about what sort of sage advice you would be giving to somebody who's thinking about taking the plunge of starting their own business? You know, there's all of this social media sort of positivity um, accolades around, you know, I'm going to be the best version of myself ever. And I'm seeing a lot of people talking about starting an enterprise. What would you say to somebody who's thinking about taking that plunge?
2: um i think it is very normal to see a trend especially now um for most people to think about i have to start my own business it's out of a pure survival when you don't have a paycheck coming your way you have to start thinking what else could i do right so you see a lot i've talked to a number of people in the last couple of days myself out there and said, if you want to talk to me, I'll give you 30 minutes of my time. And I've been flooded um, with people who just need help. And I'm hearing the same thing you're hearing, Lydia and Michelle, on social media, where everybody wants to be the best version of themselves and thinking about poppers. What do they want to wake up doing every day? So we're going to see a lot of people based just out of survival to say, I need to start something to bring money to take care of my basic needs, right? And Absolutely. then those, and there are people who Legitimately see a white space, um, and I always say, what's the biggest need that you see now? It may come from your pain point. So a lot of folks who are now working from home realize that, oh, you know what? If I could start a business for some after COVID-19, um, I think there's going to be a shift in how we work, and I think there's going to be an investment around childcare. Meaning some corporations are going to realize that, you know what, my staff has been super duper productive, but I can invest in what they need where they can work from home. But, you know, if we could subsidize childcare um, for some of our staff, that might be an interesting thing where now we need more child care providers. Um, and I think that's going to be an interesting white space and people are already thinking about that.
0: I think a lot of people will be doing a praise dance around that yeah. <laughs> like your situation Absolutely.
2: because, yeah, you know, yeah.
0: even as we've been trying to um, record podcast episodes then we're like, you know what, we're, we're recording this during the time of COVID-19.
2: I, I hear you. And so I think if you're starting the business now or before COVID-19, during, after, you really need to, yes, you might react out of survival and need. But if you're thinking long term and you should think long term, you need to really think about, is this a pain point for lots of people, whatever you created, whether it's a service or product? Because you do need a very wide funnel of customers that have this solution, uh, who need the solution that you're going to provide. Sometimes I say, if you're starting a business, just ask yourself, is this a nice to have or is this really a necessity? often when it's a necessity driven by the market, driven by me, driven by potential customers, then there will be a willingness to pay. And the more um, you stand out as in the solution itself from, and there's always substitutes and competition, but if you're unique enough and it resonates, it will take off. If it's a nice to have where I'm like, oh, it's great. It's a new product that somebody concocted for my hair. Well, I'm kind of already a brand loyal person. Am I really going to switch? I may buy at one time, but I'm not coming back. So definitely find a unique space. Make sure it's needed by mass potential customers. Therefore, the willingness to pay will come. Please think about a runway um, of your capital that you're investing. Now, think about having if NBC. Nobody comes. Then, as an investor or customers, can you sustain yourself from for eight months to a year? I would say, make it a side hustle if you have a full time job before you actually take the full leap of faith. Educate yourself about absolutely everything in the market, from cost of goods, cost of raw materials. So, there's so much I could say as far as if you're taking the plunge, do it smartly. Think of your livelihood. I always say your personal agency. Make sure you can keep a roof over your head. It breaks my heart when people come to me and say, oh my God, I, I don't have any money. If I don't sell this now, I don't know how I'm going to pay my light bill. I always say secure yourself with your basic needs before you, you think about going to be an entrepreneur because there's absolutely no guarantee um, and there are way too many macroeconomic factors which we're seeing now, like COVID nineteen, that COVID nineteen that no one was really prepared for. I'll stop there.
0: Yeah, Desiree. Um, so we were talking to an entrepreneur yesterday, and around funding and all of this, and she said something interesting that you know, the biggest source of funding is revenues. So make sure when times are hard, you can sell something. So can we talk about what types of businesses are? sort of more geared towards your ability to be able to not require a lot of investment capital that you can just get out there and sort of be able to grow more organically and invest in your business from revenues. Or well,
2: of- I, I, she's absolutely I always say the cheapest form of capital is customers. Okay. Sell, sell, sell. Customers absolutely. come, it's yeah. a transaction. You take the money, you give them something. Investors come, you owe them so much more. So low capital investments, I think, a service-oriented business. You're a lawyer. I have been a freelancer. I can start with information in my brain. It just requires that I market myself. I leverage my network. I can concretely define what I can do in 30 minutes, an hour. So service-oriented businesses that are based off of um, freelancing consultancy kind of things. A lot easier. Businesses that require products, so ingredients. That takes a little bit more capital. It really depends on your um, personal finances and your tolerance, because there are risks both sides. Again, you can say, "Oh, I'm going to go out. I know how to do branding and marketing." but guess what? There's 50,000 people out there who do branding and marketing. So you're entering into a space that's really competitive despite the fact that it's knowledge that you have how do you how do you differentiate yourself in a noisy environment that's the tricky tricky part of it everybody has skills everybody has knowledge everybody has something but it's how do you differentiate and this time it's how do you reach customers that are willing to pay when everyone's disposable income has somewhat shrunk in their basket so it's the timing always is an issue that matters but it's also putting yourself there and spreading the word word of mouth comes with, with a lot of weight these days. Um, you can get lost in the, in the abyss of Instagram and Facebook ads and it's expensive. If you're not yielding $10 to that one dollar that you spend out, you're literally bleeding yourself out.
1: Yeah. I think you make a really good point there. you know, it's, it's really about make, you know, having that hard discussion with yourself and being very clear about you know what your purpose is and sort of moving forward from there um we've had some fantastic conversations and recently you you mentioned this nbc concept
2: <laughs> nobody
1: is coming or and i just thought it was so fantastic i think it needs to come you know the, the merch needs to be um coming to a platform near us pretty soon but can you drill down a little deeper on what you mean by that especially as it relates to accessing capital and investment
2: yeah so i i nbc and some people are jolted when i say that they think i'm talking about channel four no it, it means nobody's coming um no one owes you capital no, capital is not sitting on the sidelines waiting for you um, people call me all the time and say oh i'm just looking for capital to start my business Well, you've got to take a risk. It is really up to you. You're making the choice to jump into entrepreneurship. Where's your invested stake? And it's not just time. It's about what are you willing to put as far as financial capital to bet on yourself to take this business to the next level by saying you're going to find the customers, you're going to build that pipeline, you're going to sell, sell, sell. And you have to think about it for a long term. There are lots of businesses that will never, ever ever get external capital outside of friends, family, and fools. I call it the, 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 those Fs. But oh, three Fs. The three Fs, you know. And so you've got to think about it because I do think entrepreneurship is on a overdrive, um, even before COVID-19, definitely. Uh, you go to business schools and you give presentations and you ask, you know, who wants to be an entrepreneur? 90% of the class will pull their, pull their hands up because in this culture, um, it's, it's I'm going to be the Uber, the next Uber of that. I'm going to be the next Airbnb of that. People are seducted by the idea that there's investment capital that has somewhat overvalued those types of businesses. But the reality, the reality is far from that. That's actually so far from the truth of entrepreneurship. And and I
0: I think there's an over romanticism romanticism of of entrepreneurship that really needs to be demystified so that if someone is thinking of jumping in, you better make sure that you're prepared. Be prepared. Swim. You better make sure you have your scuba diving certificate. (laughs) There you go. Underwater for a while.
2: NBC, nobody's coming. You have to operate (laughs) with that mindset. Okay. You ask yourself when, you know, Lydia, you said, make sure you ask yourself why. I say, make sure you ask yourself why five or six or seven times. Okay. Keep asking yourself why, why, why? Why me? Why this business? Why this product? Why not somebody else? Why now? Ask yourself more whys before you even decide on, I'm going to do it. And then you got to be so damn excellent on the how. Yeah. Right. so thank I you think for, for
0: s- saying the yeah. the one second lydia thank you for saying the how damn excellent on the how yes as some people want to jump in but they have no real no clue on execution so just thank Absolutely. you for that part
2: so the how it's, yeah how I think is the, so critical
1: yeah the stats are isn't it 90 percent of ventures typically fail the first time around I think it's a staggeringly high statistic
2: of, I think it's a, re- it's a real statistic they fail within the first three years 90% will fail uh, a few of them will make it to five years and shockingly I can tell you when it comes to women entrepreneurship and and this is numbers here less than what is it two percent of women-led businesses will make it to a million dollars in revenue right? you have C the six. Yes, ma'am. Those stats are shocking, right? So, and I can tell you, uh, the large majority of businesses are below half a million dollars in revenue. So investors are looking for those million dollars plus in revenue as their minimum indicator for them to invest in. So there's clearly a mismatch.
1: Yeah. And it's indeed. the type
2: of businesses that we start. So if I speak about it, there's a lot of Quote unquote copycats. I'm not saying everybody should have a unique business that you haven't seen before. Rarely have I seen that and been blown away. What I'm saying is there's very little points of differentiation um, to sway a customer. And it's not enough to just say, oh, I have a story behind that. No, the product should be mass appeal and it should actually be compelling with a track record. And you got to get obsessive about your customer. Sometimes it's customer service that actually becomes the point of differentiation. That's a good
1: point, Desiree. So in that vein, who do you think is doing this in a sort of creative, innovative way? Who's able, you know, what examples have you seen of people who've been able to navigate business, navigate funding, and, you know, get investment and have done it in a sort of creative, innovative way?
2: I, I, I think that when you say creative and innovative way, I think, you know, I always say when I look, when I'm reviewing proposals, pitch decks, um, selecting women entrepreneurs, or just speaking with them, the consistent qualities, I would say, for those who are creative, innovative, and put themselves out there, because navigating funding when you're ready comes with Um, confidence and knowing that you know your stuff, you know your business. What you're betting on, and I'm looking at it from the point of being an investor and saying, who do I bet on? I bet on, and when you're investing, I have to say 80% of the decision is about the entrepreneur. So you're betting on that person that you know has pivoted a few times, um, has understood what their strengths are, has reached out for help. They actually have hired someone who's far much more knowledgeable in like CPG space that they didn't know. They know their limitation, but they are bold about it. They, so I see flexibility in their personality. I see grit in their personality. I see confidence based on themselves, educating themselves about their business, about the landscape, not just an arrogance of, oh, I have a Harvard degree, so therefore I'm special. I could care less, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's the characteristics that make an entrepreneur creative, bold, innovative. Um, They often have a better understanding to forecast and say, you know what? I'm not going to overshoot this. I'm going to surprise myself because they have a discipline to say, I'm going to work on bringing my costs down and making sure that my profit margins are high, where I can have flexibility to be slightly innovative. And if there's an indicator for me to go into that direction, I will. I would say I've seen some age um, trends, older entrepreneurs, people that have worked before, right, who have some real-life experiences. I think that there's data out there that shows that they tend to do a little bit better. Mm. Versus someone who's outright never worked, doesn't know how to even manage people starting a business. And I'm not (laughs) saying that there aren't outliers, but I'm just saying you tend to see seasoned people who have had some experience working for others do a little bit better because they have some fundamentals of knowledge of how to run a business
1: yeah i've heard people talk about the frat boy finance yes um, mm-hmm. and that being sort of that young like you know roller coaster ride type mentality that they think's just going to get them you know, to the promised land. And, uh, and that, know. ladies,
0: is why we had the whole fire Festival debacle.
2: <laughs> 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 yeah. Indeed, indeed. But well, well, let's talk about that, right? Because this, that trend, right? So if we know that 90% of, of investors are white males, so to speak, um, in business, in corporations, you, we are women of color. I have worked in many places where no one looks like me on the C-suite level. I will never have a sponsor. I could barely find a mentor. And there are trends that say, I will advocate for someone that looks likely like me to be my successor, right? It's somewhat of a subconscious thing. It applies in all aspects, whether we're talking about investment or not, right? So- There's a gender bias, right? A guy will ask women very different questions when they're a a woman entrepreneur versus what he will ask a guy. And I have trained women entrepreneurs to present themselves and show up very differently. Quick example, when a guy walks into a room and he's pitching to an investor, actually, let me reverse this. When a woman walks into a room and it's a bunch of guys that are, uh, are investors, she might walk in and she talks about She leads with the emotive sensibility of the product. She talks about, I was home, my kid had eczema, and oh my God, I knew I had this recipe from my grandmother way back when I concocted it, and then it worked. The guys are already lost. Are you you talking about Fulayo? That is exactly her. Well, I'm talking about many entrepreneurs who go in, it it could be... (laughs) The woman that goes in and said, I was breastfeeding and my baby was colicky. I tried all kinds of bottles. And I one day I clipped the nipple of this bottle and now the baby was feeling better. So now I'm creating, the, their eyes are rolled back to their heads thinking, oh God, she's going to start talking about boobs. Okay? They're already thinking about the They're already thinking about it, right? And yeah. then you hear silly things where a, an investor, the, the soft landing might be, A guy may say to the woman, you know what, I'll ask my wife or my sister if they like this product and they'll tell me if this is okay. Yes.
0: Like what's what's up with
2: that? It's dismissive, right? But when a guy walks into the room, he goes in and often he shows up with two of his mates, right? Most women are solopreneurs. They pitch alone. We don't collaborate. I think 90% of women-led businesses are, are solopreneurs. Men show up in teams. And that's a socialization we have to think about. They show up in teams and are like, hey, what's up, buddy? Yeah, we're here to give you a $30 million opportunity because we just blew it already. We just know we're going to be a billion-dollar company next year. He hasn't said crap about what the hell he's selling. He's speaking in numbers, okay? Investors are there thinking of, how the hell am I going to make money? So tell me where, what's your track record? Tell me what's the opportunity and how we are going to make money together. Does that make sense?
1: Desiree, you have constantly been the concentrated truth serum that the world needs. That made complete
2: sense to me. And that's the orientation. We have to change the way we speak about money. But not all investors are for you. I think of investment as a marriage do your due diligence. If he's never invested in a skincare product and he's never invested in agribusiness, why are you even talking to him?
0: You know, um, Desiree, that's the theme w- that's been weaving through the last three interviews we've had. So mm. interview we did yesterday, um, someone mentioning, you know, about when women show up to pitch that one woman wasn't even considered. And when they ask the investors who are on the other side, well, why did you even consider her? They're like, she's a woman and she's probably going to get pregnant and forget about the business. Like that immediately bias, you know, yes. also around the theme of investment being a marriage, especially if you're talking about equity investment, where these people mm-hmm. are part of your business, you yes. know that be sure that these are people that you want to be in this marriage with.
2: with absolutely. Because,
0: and all money is not good money. So nope. don't just be out there taking money from just anybody. Research your investors and make sure that those are people you want to do business
2: with. Absolutely, you have, and that's the point, right? And and I am excited. This is not all doomsday news. I am excited. There are more funds out there that have been launched by women um, and are actually yes, yes. targeting women entrepreneurs or women-led businesses. How, however. Mm.
1: Mm. Oh no. Okay. Give us the caveat.
0: caveat, (laughs) But make sure you give it to us with a chaser.
2: With a chaser, right? (laughs) So here we go. So it is exciting. We need more funds out there led by women who understand intuitively women's products. I'm not looking at you for what you're who you are and thinking, oh God. Desiree has this amazing program, but mm, look at that ring on her hand. She's likely going to get pregnant in 15 minutes and who's going to run this business because she hasn't talked about people on her team, right? So when I pitch to a woman, she intuitively might get, oh, I have four young ones and oh gosh, I love this product because I wish I had it when I had my second child. Immediately there's a connection. However, there's so many... Um, ha. Huh, the way I always say the due diligence, you also have to think about if I'm a high net worth individual and I'm going to use maybe like Sarah Blakely of Spanx, right? It's literally her money and now she's created a fund. There are other funds out there where they, women have raised their fund managers, their venture capitalists, but they've gone out and raised funds from a bunch of people and they still are wedded to that ah, high performance of that fund. Their customers are their investors, right? So there is little flexibility for them to just say, so not because it's led by women means that, oh, this money is going to come very easy for us. The, the stakes are still as high. They're so research
0: the background of where the funds the in the fund are coming from.
2: You should know that because it helps you understand some of the flexibility Look at the investi- the investee, companies that have received funding from them. Go talk to them. Ask them what's the process. What are some of the terms? How, how negotiable were they or friendly? Are they coming with strategic advice? Because sometimes it's not about the money. It's about their connectivity to other sources of capital. I always say if they tell you no, in fact, you want an answer yes or no very quickly, rather than allowing yourself to be strong along for many, many months. Force them to an answer and say, "Uh, we've been talking for three months. I really need to move on. Is this likely going to be a yes or no? And if it's dead wave silence, obviously it's likely going to be a no. Don't bother them. Move on with your life. Don't push yourself along because I see that mistake as well where women entrepreneurs, just entrepreneurs in general, will just linger on Investors really know if they're hot on you, they're gonna they're gonna grab you and they're gonna want to bring you on their portfolio, in, in their portfolio. So they're saying keep going. Have many yeah. other people. Don't wait. You are hot, you're confident, your product is great. Find the right person for you that will invest in your business.
1: So it's the kind of what Michelle is saying about again. the idea of, you know, romanticizing the relationship and really, you know, they're just not that into you.
0: And that's okay. <laughs> yeah, right. So the metrics themes here are research, 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 and yep. get an answer as soon as possible. Don't get an answer. Because as Lydia said, um, the more they string you along, you can assume they're just not that into you.
2: Right. And so rather than agonize, because I see the agony that entrepreneurs go through where they so desperately want that person. They're not into you. Find another guy. Time spent in agony NBC, go back to yourself. Okay. I can give you 10 other things you could be doing with the time and the worrying. Go sell to customers and make my money. Sell, sell, sell. Find your customers, broaden that pipeline. Let you, I always say, make sure that you're so hot that investors actually are begging to be part of what you're selling. Investors will find you. All right. So with
0: that, let's um, widen the lens a little bit more um for a more global discussion. So unprecedented yes. tumult in the global business market. If you were to speculate, what specific shifts do you think are coming to the global supply chain?
2: Oh boy. Um the shifts are already happening. Um I think just going back before COVID-19, the trade was with China, right? So retail businesses were already seeing it's becoming very Um, expensive. It's no longer thinking about producing mass quantities in China. I think business models are changing to be a lot more sustainable, meaning that they're producing on on demand, they're not holding as much inventory, um, and it might cost them a lot more. I'm seeing a lot of manufacturing happening within borders, um, in the United States. So I know there are lots of brands now who are, they might have to charge a higher price because they're not ordering, they're not um, required to order thousands of, of, of stuff, of inventory from American manufacturers that might be down the road. So um, that's happening already. Um, I do think overconsumption is going to be something that we all curtail. Being at home, you realize that, do I need one more bag, one more shoes? Um, I think so. consumer behavior is somewhat going to drive some of the, the trends that we see, where sourcing is going to be a little bit different. Um, so I do think that it's, first of all, I have to say, it's only been a month. So we, I, we don't want to run. I, I always say, let's all take a deep breath. It's only been a month. There will be some normalcy, and, but there's going to be big shifts from we're all part of the consumer chain, but we also drive the supply chain. So I do think that businesses are going to take a deep look at themselves and think about what's the buffer? Are they totally being wasteful? Um, I think consumers are going to think, do I really want, what's more important to me? I think we're all going to wake up with a, a redefined purpose of how we exist. Um, so that's going to demand different kinds of products and services. We might crave face-to-face experiences because we're tired of talking to each other in Zoom. We might love our families a little bit more where travel will actually spike up, right? Experiences face-to-face, I think, is going to be really important.
0: Yes, I think there will be a tremendous boom in travel.
2: When I think so. It's
0: over. I was just talking this morning to an entrepreneur that I know who has an online travel-based business. And I, I tell him, you have to start reaching out to your potential customers now and hope. hope on the other side of COVID. And That's right. be wanting to get out of this staycation, forced vacation that they've been in. And you mm-hmm. want to start talking to them now about planning their next vacation and yes. how they can start putting money away towards, you know, Absolutely. I think a big spike in that industry is coming our way.
2: I also think that how people are treating their employees now is going to have a big impact on customer loyalty. So we are all watching how big corporations, who we already think uh, capital, um, you know, the, the, the capital beneficiaries, so to speak, how they treat their employees through crisis is really going to have a ding or positive on their brands. Does that make sense?
0: Perfect sense.
2: I think we're we're, we're going to see a shift in why should I work for a certain company because of their track record. Um, Employees care more showing up for a company that has purpose putting people first. In fact, I take it one step further. Putting planet first, people, purpose before profit. So it's the four Ps in that order. That's a shift that we're all going to make. I hope that we all make, because it's a consciousness that we should always have. And
1: I think what you're seeing is that people, you know, social media allows us to sort of take that look into what is happening and Mm -hmm. comment and experience it in real time. And you're right. I think you're seeing these, you know, attempts at CEOs who, you know, have deferred their astronomical salaries um so that you know employees can you know ensure that they have health benefits and salaries and things like that and then you've seen you know the other side of that where people have been furloughed you know Mm -hmm. very quickly and there just wasn't the resilience built into the company to allow for that or however Mm -hmm. they've decided to make those decisions so i agree with you i think that information is at your fingertips and so i do think that customers and just the general public in terms of support will look um, with a bit of an exacting eye about that?
2: But there's a darkness. So what keeps me up at night is actually the global South. So when I'm talking about, we're actually lucky in the West because we have um, a government in the US, for example, and Western countries that have national healthcare systems the dire straits of what's happening right now on the continent in Africa is very different from what we're talking, here, uh, talking about sure. right now.
0: Talk okay. about so it. We live Africa.
2: on a daily economy where people have to work daily so they could feed themselves and their families. There's a tension that's brewing mm-hmm. right now where people have been told to stay home. I spoke to somebody in Uganda where she's saying, I don't even have food in my house to feed my kids because I didn't have time to get those basic needs. Um, Flour, sugar, rice. And there's been hyperinflation, of course, immediately of basic goods like rice. Prices have just gone up overnight and they don't have the cash to buy. Businesses are suffering because banks have not reacted. They're still gouging the fees out of their accounts if you're late. They still expect their loans to be paid at 20, 30%. Um, There hasn't been a full mobilization of capital. Some high net worth individuals, some folks are doing something, but thats I don't see that move right now on the continent, and that keeps me up at night because guess what? We have a huge unemployment. 70% of folks are not employed in a formal economy. It's the informal sector that drives our economies in Africa. And that is what keeps me up at night. And And there is no safety safety net. There's no safety net. And the health system alone is already fragile, right?
0: Okay, don't even get me started on on that part. (laughs) I'm sorry. Really keep me up at night. You know, in addition to the impact that the informal sector is going to... If this thing gets out of hand with the weak health systems... Oh my goodness. Africa is just going to take the brunt of it.
2: Because the reality of entrepreneurs on the continent, let's just separate from what we're talking about. I tell people, you have electricity and running water here. Your cost of, of goods is actually, you can control that. The African entrepreneur has to generate electricity, may have to actually generate clean water, um, is constantly battling with instability of prices for everything that they, they need to create their products, um, the, the unreliability of employees. You're literally a CEO who is working as an employee in your business 24-7. That's the reality. And yes. cost of capital is the highest on the planet when you get a loan from a bank in Africa their issues are very different from what the entrepreneur faces here
1: so, i think you make a really good point desiree about you know first of all this social distancing idea is a, is a is a true luxury for most those that are able to do it you know it's it's a, it's a luxury it's a luxury to have mm-hmm. um the resources that you need to be able to stay in your house and so right. in so many places that's just not um you know possible but I also think you make such a good point about you know is there an ability to sort of change your packaging models or have a delivery service you know so much about the informal sector is about face-to-face contact community you know commerce the very things that we are being told not to do around COVID-19 and it's spread. And so I think, you know, I'll be very interested to sort of track the developments around this, but I do agree with you. I think the peril for the continent is it's very, it's very transactional, very in-face, formal, informal sector Mm -hmm. Um, and the, and the challenges around people who, are literally you know living
2: hand-to-mouth absolutely it's, it's a problem I mean you could sit in your home in the United States for a week and you can do all your transactions you know at a click of a button you have electricity you have internet um, over there you know and you can afford for your your telephone not to even be, be shut off uh, for two months before they even say hey you're late right there it's speak on demand you have credit, you talk to people. If you don't have credit on your phone, the end. You're cut off right. immediately, right? Um, uh, the, the, the mobile banking system is not seamless for all. I can, I can use mobile minutes to actually um, pay for basic rice and sugar. That really. I don't have that luxury on the continent. Um, I rely on people to fetch water and deliver to my house. It might look like a magnificent house, but it's still a, a contractor for me to even get running water in my house to fill my my tanks. Things impact society very differently on that side. And that, that's what keeps me up at night. And I've spoken to many entrepreneurs on that side. And it's a, everybody's thinking about how are they going to sustain themselves. They can't even keep their employees to work for them. Their employees cannot get to work because it's actually insecure where... You and I, we know this context where you have—I um, I don't want to call them gangsters, but area boys, people who are unemployed, mm-hmm. who literally now are blocking the road to say, "Hey, I haven't eaten for two days. So, for you to go through the road, madam, you have to give me ten thousand naira or a couple of shillings." That's right, the reality all, all of the, what's happening on the ground. Right, or the
0: effect that you know is going to be felt on the continent that we might not feel here.
1: That's right. Yeah that's right that's true that's true like the the oil or the grease that keeps the informal sector going is you know yep. it it is it's it's a little bit of corruption to get absolutely. things moving
2: uh, we've all not.
1: experienced that
2: sure but mm-hmm. so that's how um, 70% of the population lives yeah absolutely uh so
1: again like uh, you know we could just continue talking about um covid and you know the fallout here but in this situation uh, you know we have to ask you know wtf where is the funding currently you know do you know of funds foundations dfis any sources or, or resources that might be helpful to our demographic
2: Um, Yes. So I I am chasing the funding. I am watching foundations. I'm looking at corporations. I am posting everything that comes my way. Um, There's something called GrantStation that will fund. There's some funds that are looking for small businesses, businesses led by women, a little bit of international funding um, that's out there. Um, We all know about the stimulus package here. But wherever I find it, I post. Um, there are individual campaigns that you can do on crowdfunding platforms. So, individuals who have, you know, we almost, a lot of people don't look at crowdfunding because they think, oh, it's just a little bit of money. But crowdfunding platforms are very compelling. People can raise millions of dollars on crowdfunding um, platforms. So, I would say put a little bit of campaign out there, especially for international folks, um, capitalize and say, I'm raising X because it's the crowd, the global crowd that can put $100 and make a difference in this time of crisis. People want to help. Individuals have called me and said, I would love to help uh, a small business. How do I find that small business and who do I give money? Somebody called yesterday and said, I'm doing a crowdfunding campaign for masks because they anticipate that African folks will not have access to masks. So she's found local tailors that she could give money to get fabric and start making masks. Um, Somebody wants to put local food baskets just to distribute to children um, in her neighborhood. Crowdfunding platforms are the way to go right now for emergencies because if I have $100, I I would want something that I know will have an instant impact, right? So don't don't, um, dismiss those platforms. Find them, put a campaign on. You never know, the crowd will participate. Mobilize, everyone now is paying attention to their Facebook page because we're all at home. Mobilize your networks to say, listen, I'm here. I need money. $10 will go a long way. Help. Um, Definitely foundations are stepping up. Definitely individuals, high net worth individuals are stepping up. I think corporations are thinking about their immediate good is to actually provide the, the leave pay for their employees to keep them going um, before they can apply for funds. So it's more individualistic as an in internal for lots of the big corporations. But um, I'm, I'm seeing CSR programs. Again, it's only been a month. So I think people are, need time to calibrate a little bit to say what's the best way I can help. So it's coming. I think in times of crisis, believe it or not, fundraising goes up. People That's give true. Money. So That's this is a, I am optimistic about that. So we all just need to circulate the resources when we see it. I've been posting consistently on my on my Facebook page. For me, as a cross sector person, I'm looking at the for profit side who can benefit. I'm looking at the non profit side. So um, Shea Moisture, um, I think, just put up a fund. We don't know how to apply to it yet. That yeah, New
0: Voices uh, Fund. Yeah. yeah,
2: that one. I saw that. um There are lots of individual foundations, Verizon through LISC. Um, they have a fund for small businesses and for women. Um there are a few sure foundations, that one too. Yeah, there are a few foundations that are put in. And international, it's a little bit tricky um because it probably will be country specific. Um But what needs to happen, and my friend Ada Osakwe, who I've recommended that you guys speak to, She's an entrepreneur in Nigeria, and she showed me um, a brief concept, somebody interviewed her, where she made recommendations, she and other business owners uh, made recommendations of what they think should happen in the ecosystem. And I said, you know, take it one step further. There are 40 plus million SMEs in Nigeria, start a petition. It takes the masses to actually make the shift and the appeal for the central bank To make policy decisions to say freeze all loans for three months because the economy is actually shut down. How the heck is somebody paying you fees when they're not even making money? And you could see those ebbs and flows in their accounts. There needs to be systemic um, shifts and and policies that can somewhat buffer that system. It cannot be up to her and six other people. She has to mobilize everyone to say, listen this is my signature. These are the three things that you can do for us as small business owners today. It needs to happen and we can support them by interviewing them, bringing their voices to the global um, arena as well so that the pressures come from all around.
0: Absolutely. And we love to have her on the show. So you talk about, you post a lot of information. Tell us where our listeners can find you on social to key into all this valuable information. Key
2: into me. Well, my name is my brand. So Desiree Young, you can find me on LinkedIn. Y-O-U-N-G-E. I post on LinkedIn. I post on my Facebook page. Um, I post on Instagram, Desiree's 75 on Instagram. Um, I send emails to, uh, friends, especially women of color who own businesses. So I have all these little segments of networks. So it's very targeted when I hit the send button, but I am, I am pretty available. You can find me and thank you all. Now that I've, I've done this podcast, hopefully these were nuggets of, of wisdom that, that resonate with entrepreneurs and individuals out there.
1: Always. Okay, Desiree, every time I speak to you, I just, um, I'm always smarter. So thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. And you, you provided so much information, uh, and a valuable insight. So thanks again.
0: Thank you. I think having people like you on the show and having this type of conversation is why we started the show.
2: Yes. So-
0: people who are listening can really get access to people who are in the know and have the information to share because information is powerful
2: information is powerful but you know we have to be empowered with our own knowledge we have to be confident in our own footing routine businesses um, so that we command and our voices are heard when we do have access to the table you know i always say don't waste your social capital when you get into that door. you're getting in you know my mantra is that from my angelo i come as one but i do stand for 10,000
1: powerful thank you so much desiree um words to live by all right all right, all right. bye thank friends. You so much. thank you thank you take care bye. bye bye okay Such a great episode with Desi. She's just such a wealth of information. Um, I particularly enjoyed her bumper sticker quote of nobody's coming. Um, I think that that just really speaks to the very sure-minded and deliberate thought that is required when going into entrepreneurship. I also appreciated hearing from her about the added Um, challenges that are required on with um, entrepreneurship on the continent so you know whereas you're not thinking entrepreneurs in the west aren't thinking about water supply and electricity and internet as much um, those are real issues that supply chains have to think about in many african countries and so Understanding that and understanding how financiers might think about that and also just thinking about how to position and posit yourself in the best way when pitching for funding, I think, was also an important uh, thought, important place to start thinking um, when it comes to sort of looking for finance and funding.
0: I agree with that, and that the primary uh thing of focus when you're in front of investors is to show them how you're there to make them money, like they don't care about what your needs are and and you know they care about how are you going to to make them money, and not to say that they don't care, but that's not their primary thing. they're there as investors. It is as a business they're looking to get a return on their investment, so the primary thing for you as someone who is seeking investment is to make it very clear to the investors that you are approaching, how it is that you are going to help them make money. If they invest in you, what is their return on investment for um, the funds that they're investing in? What are you bringing to the table? So lead with that, lead with how are you going to be successful and make money? And I know that Desiree has some <laughs> some strong opinions about grants as a source of financing. And I remember there was a time myself when I was very anti-grants, even though I'd worked at a grant-making institution for quite a number of years. But I do think that grants um, do have their place, um, depending on the type of business and how, if you have the kind of business model where it might take you a little while to start turning over revenues. Um, just to, it certainly in the early stages, just to get up and running. So um, I think there's a place for everything. And, you know, grant is a little bit more patient capital than uh, loans and other types of investments. So I think everything has its place depending on the type of business that you're running and your, your, your kind of your runway. Um, But um, Desiree's perspectives were very, very interesting. And I just really enjoyed listening to her breath of knowledge both here in the US and on the African continent here in the US, working with Troy Birch and being a part of that accelerator, and her work with the Tony Elomelo Foundation, sort of um, building up the whole ecosystem for youth entrepreneurship there. Um, two very uh, strong initiatives that add a lot of value to the entrepreneurship um, space on two sides. Of um, of the Atlantic, I think is just a, a great span of experience, and I and I felt very blessed to to hear her perspectives.
1: Yeah, I definitely Desi is a person, um or Desiree <laughs> is a person who is a good connector. She's got lots and lots of information and happy to share it. So, for those who want to sort of know what's happening, would definitely. Um, encourage you to to check out her instagram and connect with her i know that she's giving um help um to small businesses and you know mentorship um opportunities are available so definitely check that out
0: well guys thank you once again for um tuning in and 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 listening to us and the entrepreneurs who we bring on this and and others who we bring on this platform to share their perspectives. Thank you for listening. Continue to subscribe, download, stream, rate, review, all that good stuff. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening.